This is episode 104 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. I'm Andrew Kleiman. Later in today's episode, in the main segment, you'll be listening to the conclusion of the discussion between Brendan Cooney and me on the famous principle from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. Before that, in our current events segment, Gabriel Donnelly and I will discuss the recent strike by U.S. auto workers, which was generally understood as resulting in a big victory for the union. Uh, We'll also talk about strikes in the entertainment industry. And before that, we have a very brief interview with Scott Holman, director of Witness Underground, an anti-cult film, about the Kickstarter campaign to help secure wider distribution of his film. Please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, the website of Marxist Humanist Initiative, to listen to past episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to learn more about the issues discussed in them, to post comments, and to donate to the podcast series. MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. This podcast series is sponsored and hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, but the views expressed by hosts and guests are our own. They don't necessarily reflect the views or positions of MHI itself. Next up, my interview with Scott Homan. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm here with Scott Homan, who is the director of Witness Underground. Hi, how's it going, Scott? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, hoping to uh, help you out here. Scott is the director of Witness Underground, a film about cults. Uh, He can describe it better, but the reason we're having this little special segment is they've got a Kickstarter fundraising drive, which ends today, the 17th of November. At the end of the day, this is the last day of the drive. So go to the description text. There's a link. You can help them out on Kickstarter. But Scott, can you describe the film and can you tell us why you're raising funds for it? This is the first film to humanize cult life and survival via self-expression and music. And it's an important film that I deeply care about. And there's a lot of other similar faith groups who people have left and gone through something similar. And we decided the reason I want to do a Kickstarter is because we're doing a fully independent release. And this allows us to have some seed money to get it out. Part of this is getting advertising. So you're helping us out already by letting your audience know the film exists so that when it when it is fully available everywhere, they can go get it. Right now, the Kickstarter is like the very first time we're making not only the film available, but the soundtrack, the extras, 32 albums of music that are highlighted in the movie, and um, also nine books. Three of them are show up in the movie. And are, we have a global community of people that documentary is kind of a nostalgic piece about the past. And the music came out after they all left their religion. So it's like it's an important piece about shunning and um, moving on from a difficult situation using the power of music to process trauma. And there's also something that lives on after that. I run uh, with the Witness Underground podcast, which follows musicians and artists who've left cults. So those people and their music and art are also in the crowdfund. And all what I just mentioned is donated material to help support the release of this movie in an independent fashion. Thank you. Why do you need to raise funds to get this going? It's a great question because we already finished the movie. So you're not raising money to create the movie. You're raising money to help us get it out into the world on common streaming services. It's a finishing funds. There's a whole lot I could talk about about distributing a movie, especially if we're an independent way. It took me years to figure out how to do this. But right. this, is, this is one of those paths. Like It's not just about the money. 
crowdfund is about the crowd too. So when you when you crowdfund, you're sort of getting you're getting people to say like, wow, that's really interesting. It's interesting enough for me to give them ten dollars or a hundred dollars or to buy the art that's donated to be a part of it. Um, and you're getting something. You're not when we first crowdfunded the production of the movie. You were just kind of getting goodwill, like, oh, this sounds really cool. I hope it exists one day. Will it exist? We spent five years making it. We have about 40, 45 people that came forward from all over the world to help us make it something really, really special and powerful. It did win an award at a film festival. We went to 11 film festivals. So it's gotten some validation from the rest of the world. And it's now time to put this out and to find its audience. And part of the crowdfund is actually finding the audience. So thank you for being a part of that and helping make that happen. One thing you mentioned was something like similar faith-based cults, similar to what? Yeah. So this is this film follows a group of musicians within the Jehovah's Witnesses in a very closed off, high control society. And one of the things we want to bring out in the movie is that it's a, not a benign, Jesus-loving, well-meaning group. They actually have some dark, nefarious angles, and they're a doomsday religion where they expect you all to be killed by Jesus soon. And that's pretty extreme, a fundamentalist group. But there are other groups that have similar types of structures of control, and that would include, I mean, I don't want to alienate anyone, but there's other well-known groups such as the Mormons or the fundamentalist, ultra-Orthodox Jewish community might have some similar patterns of control for their society. And not to say anything about those belief systems, but just like people go through trauma when they get kicked out or ostracized from their communities. And then there's many others, the Moonies. We'll be talking about this when, when we do a formidable, serious uh, discussion of this at, at some future that. date. But let me ask just a final question here. Hopefully, some of our listeners can listen before the Kickstarter campaign ends. But if they listen after it has ended, how can they help out? It's a great question. I have so go to witnessunderground.com. Witness Underground is the title of the movie and the website. And there we have everything about the movie, its release, and also a Patreon. So Patreon's a way to support the creation of the, the project. The project isn't just the movie. The project is also the podcast and also a series called XJW Coming Out, which is an interview series on YouTube. And all that is you get exclusive access to some of that content or early access. And that also funds the overall project and the success of this project. So windowsunderground.com is always the place to find out information on what's happening, what we're releasing and what's next. And there's an amazing and there's amazing music and art coming out of this project. And I'm so excited to share it with everybody. I'm always curating a new a new thing and there's new artists coming out of the woodwork. And it's a really exciting project for me. I'll be doing this for a very long time. Thank you so much. Do look at the description text. That's where you're going to find the link to the Kickstarter and the link to the Witness Underground site. Uh, today is uh, November 11, uh, 2023. Uh, I'm Andrew Kleiman. I'm here with Gabriel Donnelly, uh, who has been a guest uh, in prior episodes of Radio Free Humanity. Uh, and in this uh, Brief current events segment, we're going to be talking about uh, the recent uh, auto workers' strike in the U.S., and uh, hopefully we'll have a little bit of time also to uh, touch on the strikes in the entertainment industry. Um, so after a relatively short strike, as these things go, uh, it looks like the big, uh, you know, unionized uh, automakers, you know, those who have unions, um, it looks like they caved. It looks like they caved pretty badly. This is generally regarded as a, a major win 
uh, for the Auto Workers Union, the UAW. Is that how you read it? Yeah, Andrew, thanks for having me on again. And yes, I definitely would read this as a pretty major victory. The union got most of everything they asked for and um, largely ended the tier system, which was the real major goal. They wanted to end the tier system that was instituted after the 2008 crisis. It still exists in um, in a much in a diminished way. And the tiers equal out after uh, four years work as opposed to uh, much longer or in some cases, you know, permanently being a tier below your coworkers. So they were able to win that and other uh, concessions that they said they had wanted. So okay, so tier is T I E R, not T E A R, uh, and, and and basically it means that not all uh, workers were were equal. Some had uh, substantially lower pay. Um, one of the things that I found most striking, no pun intended, about about the the the, the settlement was how big the boost was on the low end, uh, affecting the pay of the the the. the the lower tier workers, they, they, they got some big, big uh, pay increases in the low end. Yeah, I think I saw certain numbers along. They they had asked for 42 um, percent pay bumps for those workers. Initially, they didn't get it, but it was still in the large uh, double digits of a percent increase to salary uh, that these workers received. The a slogan of the union was record profits mean record salaries, right? So that was something they really were pushing for, big, big pay bumps. And why do you think that the um, the companies gave in so, relatively speaking, as these things go, so so they, they gave in a lot and, and, and relatively quickly? Was that because they had a cushion of record profits that, that enabled them to do it, or what is that you think happened? Yeah, there's definitely a larger conversation to be had about that because it, it is it is a question for me. I think on some level the the auto workers recognize the fact that electric vehicle production is about to change uh, auto production in a huge way. It's something they're embracing and they're getting big big subsidies from many governments, not just the U.S to do so. Uh, and that transition has led in places with with unionized auto manufacture, such as Brazil and Mexico. Those workers in Brazil and Mexico have already been hit by big, big uh, layoffs because of the beginnings of the transition to electric vehicle production. So on a, a cynical way, I think the, the auto workers may be thinking, well, we give these workers these big pay bumps now, who knows as we start this change how much power they're going to have as production starts to change on the floor how many of these workers we're going to need to have around that are being paid at these numbers um and i think they also were recognizing the fact that uh, electric vehicle production wasn't wasn't on the, the the negotiating table this time around and that gave them uh, there were some concessions about it but they were happy to not have to discuss that they would probably rather discuss wages just simple wages than have to discuss you know keeping keeping these jobs it went 
one like that. Um, but I also think they were hit to do a more positive view. I do think they were hit by this stand up strike that the union used in, in a lot of ways. It definitely hit their bottom line. And it's the first time in, I forget the number, but in a number of years or uh, at least on this scale, all three of the big three American auto workers have been have been struck. And uh, I think the aggressive stance of the union and the aggressive rhetoric of the union might have taken them a little bit aback and, and meant that they said, uh, geez, we should maybe maybe just give them what they're asking for and, and end this and get production back to where we want it to be. Right. I like to discuss this. I mean, this was, as far as I know, a new strike tactic that I was not aware of. I mean, um, and the way I understand it is um, basically it was a rolling strike. So they would not strike throughout the entire industry all at the same time. They would, um, the UAW would say, you know, particular automakers, particular plants, uh, you guys are going out on the strike, and they would pretty much do that at the at the, at the last minute. Uh, and that kind of kept the uh, auto companies on the back foot. You know, they didn't know what to expect from day to day, hour to hour. And basically, uh, the union was then able also to uh, offer during the negotiations a carrot and a stick, you know. You negotiate in good faith with us, listen to what we're talking about, give in, you know, we won't strike you, okay, but the the, the, the bad guys over there, uh, the, you know, they're not listening to what we're saying, they're being hard-ass, they're going to get struck. There's been a couple of statements from the union going around of explaining this, what they call the the stand-up strike, where where once the strike vote came in, there was an overwhelming strike approval vote in the UAW. It was in the high 90%. Everyone was ready to strike and strike against all three. And they were told, start getting ready and have your um, your shop stewards and strike leaders get every shop floor ready to strike if you get that call. And then different plants were told to strike. And the idea they said, but the union said, if we went out on a mass strike, all three auto workers have that priced in and could cope with how long we could strike with our current strike fund. The strike fund had to pay out for all striking workers a salary of $500 a week and their full medical benefits. And that kind of thing can add up. That can be pretty expensive. What the stand-up strike method did allow them to do is to punch above their weight with how much they were spending from the fund. So they could have uh, people go to work and not actually have to do, uh, basically be at work being paid by the company, not have much to do because it's so connected. Um, production is so connected across plants. And especially when you have the companies responding to the stand-up strike and scrambling and saying, okay, we heard a rumor that such and such plant is going out tomorrow. That's going to be the next plant that goes out. So take all the supplies in this plant that we can move and move them here because they're going to be here tomorrow. And then when both <laughs> both sets of plants are open the next day, the rumor was wrong. Well, those workers who went into work, they're getting paid by the by by Ford, let's say, for their work for that week, even though there's not much production to do because most of what they're going to be doing is moving equipment back, setting back up for the scramble that management did. That's just right. a, an, sort of an example. But 
the real point is they were able to punch above their weight with what they were dipping into the strike front to do. And I think that was what they were really worried about is we want to strike all three. We want to have a big mass strike, but we don't want to just have it be a ticking clock of the strike front. How can we use our, our big, you know, very big strike front, but also make it last and, and hurt the company fiscally as much as possible while also keeping people in work and getting paid by them and not the fund as much as possible. That okay, so it really wasn't keeping, it, you know, it was described wherever I heard this or read this as they were keeping production open. I had read, you know, or heard something about one of the uh, ideas behind this stand-up strike is um, not only were they going to, like, you know, intermittently strike at this plant, that plant, uh, but that they wanted to keep production going. So what I've, I think I've understood from what you've said is it wasn't a matter of keeping production going, but keeping the the workers uh, on the payroll. So they're getting, you know, uh, because production's going, the workers are getting paid to some extent, and that allows the uh, strike fund not to be depleted uh in short order you know so the 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 automakers can't say well after you know 120 days you know that's going to be the end of the strike fund and we just have to wait this out and then you know uh they, they they're going to have to take whatever we give them uh you know if you if you strike intermittently you can probably keep, keep uh, the uh the strike fund going for for a very long time that is what you're saying right yeah, that exactly. And it wasn't without risk because continuing to work without the contract actually meant the the workers still going in to the plant, still doing productive work, were uh, taking a lot of risks. They lose their arbitration rights. So um, it, it was a risky strategy, but it seems in this case to have paid off. Huh. So, so, so they were not working under the r- rules of the old contract anymore. No, they, they hadn't. Um, there was there's actually a funny, uh, you know, funny in a, a bit of a grim way, FAQ page on the UAW strike during the uh, strike page on their site during the strike. And it said, what does it mean to work under arbitration? And it says in as many words, um, you know, you would lose your arbitration rights to if you get in trouble. So try not to get in trouble if you're working during the strike, you know, it, in, in, in so many words, because they were working without a contract. So they lost a lot of those protections by still going in. But like I said, in this particular case, seems it paid off. Uh, let me ask you briefly about the uh, strikes in, in the um, entertainment industry, the Hollywood strikes, so-called, uh, the, 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 the SAG after strike recently uh, concluded. What, what's, what's your, your view of, the, uh, of them? And, you know, again, this has been touted as a big victory for, for the workers, uh, how do you read it? What's what's your your take on these um, these strikes? Really interesting. Uh, the SAG-AFTRA um, and Writers Guild strikes really really interesting for the <laughs> the those interested in labor or following labor. It's it was very close to a craft wide strike in some ways. Um, it seems very clear to me. From conversations I have with people involved in IATSE, which is the sort of 
makeup and behind the scenes uh, crew side of Hollywood production that if their contract was up this year instead of next year, they would have been out as well. Uh, they very nearly went out on strike in their last contract negotiation. So it, it just a reality of when those contracts expired, it could have been more craft wide. The Directors Guild of America, their, their contract was up this summer, but they did not fight very uh, hard on theirs and they d- didn't go out on strike, which is, is now a bit of a contentious thing apparently amongst all these unions in the same productive sphere, but it was very close to craft wide. It was, it was a big strike. It was the first time since Ronald Reagan was president of the SAG after um, union in the sixties that both unions went out on strike in the same time. And it's interesting that it's certainly a win in some regards, SAG after workers, they got a big bump to their, to their uh, baseline pay, which was largely what the strike was about. It was about, um, I think for most people, they look at actors and we think of the the famous ones that command big, big pays. But this was a strike about your um, work, working class, work a day actor, just trying to make it in the industry and survive off it. Um, and also dealing with the realities of, of changes to the industry and the fact that you don't get residuals the way that they used to get residuals because much of television production is now aimed for streaming, which has totally um, avoided and circumnavigated a lot of the pre-existing labor standards that were in pre-existing contracts when these streaming services were built up. They exploited loopholes to avoid having to pay out residuals. That fight, I would say, is not fully won. I would encourage listeners to go and read about like the details of those contracts. Basically, they were able to negotiate not necessarily residuals on streaming services, but pay bonuses for um, big numbers on streaming. But baseline pay for actors was they got a big pump and writers got major change to how production is done uh, in terms of staffing. They were able to get minimum staffing so that the amount of work writers on a set show aren't as overstretched as they have been. And each union is able to highlight the wins that they got as big wins and big stretches of union power. And it was it was very impressive to see something close to a craft wide strike in America in the 21st century. So in in terms of uh, the self understanding of the, the union movement in the United States, um, these recent strikes, do, do, do you think that they've affected the way the, the union movement understands itself and what it's doing and its goals and its fights? Yeah, I, 100%. I think, honestly, more than any individual victory, that's kind of the story of the last year in the American labor movement. Uh, there was a, a very interesting story a couple months ago, and the numbers now are much starker, about how 2023 has been the most strike activity in America in decades. Uh, and like I said, since that story in The Times came out, the numbers have only gotten more stark. That was before the UAW went out on strike. UPS nearly went on strike this summer in their contract negotiations. And I think the story of this year of striking is the story of the rhetoric and the stance of the uh, workers and the union leadership uh, being very aggressive, uh, much more aggressive than I think we're, we're used to seeing, uh, in particular from the UAW. The UAW, when they won their contracts, they 
put out their statement, their victory statement saying, uh, well, I should say they haven't fully completed the process, but it, it's a fairly set thing. It needs to be approved. And it seems like it will. But when they announced that they had these tentative agreements that were going to probably become contracts, they said, we're telling the, the rest of the, the labor movement in America, we're trying to set our dates for these contracts for May 2028. Try and set your contracts to expire around those times if you are negotiating contracts right now, because we want to. Um, this was the exact words that UAW President Sean Fain used. We want to flex our collective muscles. So there, it's this broader thinking about uh, a labor movement and the ability to have multiple strikes going on, affecting productions on uh, production across multiple different levels. It's dancing around the ban on solidarity strikes that's been in American law since Taft Hartley passed by saying, uh, you know, we can we can strike when our contracts expire, when negotiations are going on. And if we just happen to have many unions set our contracts to expire on the same time so we can have more strikes going on at once. That's so just, it's not a solidarity strike on behalf of other workers. It's just the other workers are going out at the same time because their contract is uh, expired. Yeah. Right. And it's, that's perfectly legal. You can, that's a, and that kind of uh, dancing through the raindrops of, of, of labor law and, and using uh, the labor law that exists to, to have more collective action is it's very new and very strong rhetoric. And, I think that it's becoming more and more understood that um, these did get results. And the UAW said, we won this contract. That's good. The fight's not over because now we're going to show this contract and what we won in it to non-unionized workers. They said, word for word, Tesla, we're coming for you. Um, that this is it's a part of a continual ongoing struggle and fight uh, to strengthen and build up the labor movement and have its habit fighting on its own volition and uh, collectively. And I think that's very interesting development. This is Anne Jacquard from Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI. MHI aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. Today, amidst many wars, climate crises, economic, social, and political crises, is a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we're faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism, extinguishing our right even to carry on such discussions. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism and not to socialism. 
We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organizations and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interest separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website and podcast to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice, as well as to espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as a way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Our collective is working to create an organization so formally rooted in its philosophy that it will not succumb to diversions that may arise from personal agendas and that will be capable of developing and concretizing the philosophy over the long haul, regardless of who its members may be. It is no simple matter to create a democratic organization that is at the same time effective and able to resist efforts to divert it from its goals. We are aware that Marx never achieved an organization based on his philosophy and that Donevskaya's organization disintegrated following her death. But we have made progress in this matter with our principles and bylaws and by recognizing that Marxist humanism cannot be carried on by chance or by individuals alone. An organization is needed in order to test and prove ideas. We invite all of you to join us in this discussion and our initiative. So Belando, Edward Belando, he cites and concurs with Robert Ware that Marx writes about a higher phase, a higher phase, and not the higher phase, which leaves open the possibility that there could be more phases in between the higher and lower one. And Belando also endorses Nick Rogers' point that the critique of the GOTA program is the only text in which Marx refers to two distinct phases of communist society. What is the significance of these observations? Let me say just a couple of things about language and then try to explain what I think at least Nick Rogers' motivation for saying, hey, this is the only text where he talks about two phases of communist society, because I think that there's a valid concern underlying this. By the way, Nick Rogers was a guest on uh, this podcast a while back. Think about a higher phase versus the higher phase. In Marx's text, there are only two phases. So even if he refers, as he does, to a higher phase, if one is referring to the text and these two phases because they're the only ones specified in the text, one is the lower phase and one is the higher phase. That's the only way in English to talk about the text. And there's a lot of discussion, and, and Belando kind of endorses and repeats it, that 
we get this idea of the lower phase and the higher phase from Lenin's state and revolution. Lenin introduced this. Well, that can't be the case because state and revolution was written in Russian and there are no articles A and the in, mm. in, in Russian. Mm. <laughs> so it's not, it's not Lenin's doing. But I'm not sure about Robert Ware because I haven't read that book, but what I think Nick Rogers is concerned what I think Nick Rogers is concerned about, and I think it's a very valid concern, is stageification, which has always been strategy, rhetorical strategy of Stalinists and some Trotskyists and so forth. These are people who like emphasize what we need to do is take power, and that's this is the lower phase. And then you get like the gnome strategy, take power, question mark. Socialism, full communism, right? How do you get from one to the other? Well, you get this like, well, we don't know, but you know, you gather the underpants, question mark, profit, right? I mean, the same kind of gnome strategy just on a political level. This is very common among the so-called Marxists. The stageify like this and to move from taking power to an eventual nirvana. Can we just okay? clarify for people that you're referring to yeah. a joke about gnomes, G-N-O-M-E, and you're not yeah. referring to Noam Chomsky? Not referring to Noam okay. Chomsky or Noam Alaska or, or okay. Christy Noam. <laughs> right. So this is from South Park, underpants gnomes. So I, th I think Nick Rogers is, is concerned to combat that kind of stagification. So he wants to rid of the idea of, or minimize as much as possible, the, the idea of distinct phases or stages. That's good, but I think it's got a drawback. And the drawback is that what Marx calls the higher phase of communism is not realizable right now. I can't even imagine that it'll be realizable in this century, no matter what kind of revolutions we have. We're talking about an immense improvement in technology, I think, and production, and a total transformation of the nature of work, and ending all divisions of labor. This is going to be, if it happens at all, a very, very long historical process. And Marx says, and I think he's right, only then can you have from each according to their ability, each according to their needs. So the question is, what, what happens in the meantime? Are we stuck with capitalism? Are we stuck with capitalism? run by, you know, Vanguard that calls itself socialist, and we're still going to be having a capitalist society? Well, hell no. We can have a communist society, real socialist society that totally breaks with capitalist principles short of that, short of this moment in the very distant future, if at all, where we've got from each according to their ability, each according to their needs. We can have a society without value production, without exchange of product, without some people monopolizing the means of production so that others have to do their bidding. One where labor is directly social, where if you contribute labor, that is your contribution to society, full stop. It's totally different from what we have right now. And unlike from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs, I think it is realizable given current conditions. Yeah. Not the political conditions, <laughs> but you know, economic, technological development and so forth that we have right now. I just find it just kind of eye-rolling sometimes when we're getting into the weeds about an article and a sentence of an unpublished manuscript as if, you know, as if we were going to base a whole philosophy or political program around a word choice that Marx made 
there's like a much larger body of much larger argument logic that Marx is using. And I would rather base my thinking on like what makes sense of within the, the theory that Marx has written rather than trying to like read the tea leaves about one or two word choices. It's not just a personal preference of yours. It's a superior method of interpretation of a text. Yeah. And also like I'm, we're not basing like what we, what politics we want on just because Marx wrote it. The ideas are important and the fact that they have inner cohesion and logic to them that can be developed for the future that is important. Not that we're trying to like dogmatically follow a religious text and argue about the meaning of every little word. Yeah, absolutely correct. Or at least, you know, absolutely correct for me. Really don't care whether Marx said it, except insofar as if it's something he said, I'm going to give it a very serious look because he got a lot of things right. But the fact that Marx said it is not what makes it right. And people get very excited about this this text as one of the few places where you have a discussion of a future society that has substance to it. But it's also very short, and it takes place in the context of this polemic against other socialists. It has to be understood within like this context of an overall Marxist thought in general, not just like read like, a, like we're reading Revelations or something. Here's a, a quote from Bolando's PhD thesis on this. He writes, the famous paragraph has generated two related misunderstandings, that there will be unlimited abundance and that therefore it will be possible to satisfy all needs. Think that if you look at Marx says about the expansion of the forces of production and the wealth springs of cooperative wealth flowing more freely, if you look at that in context, then what is being talked about as a society with an immense abundance, maybe not unlimited abundance, I don't even know what that would be, but immense abundance because the principle is, and, and Belando says this, one gets irrespective of what one contributes. You contribute without regard to what you're going to get in return because you don't have to worry about that. There's not going to be a society with drastically limited amount of stuff that has to be rationed so that you have to say, well, you only get if you do this and do that. So I think that if you jam up the two parts of this and make the whole thing cohere, as you've just stressed, then it takes on a different character and the abundance, not just like, oh, somewhat more abundant, 15%. It's a real difference in, from what we have right now and, and from what we would have just as a communist society emerges from capitalism. There's a lot of concern in ecology about human production outstripping the ability of the planet to uh, already within our current capitalist society. There's a lot of concern that if everyone had the same standard of living that the people in the West did, we wouldn't have enough like resources to actually satisfy those needs, you know, like basic resources like water and energy and things. So those kind of considerations would make this prerequisite for the higher stage of communism even more challenging to get to, right? Because it wouldn't just be incredibly productive mode of production. It would have to be mode of production that was way more productive than we have now, but also way less ecologically destructive. So the task is even like, even even more hard for us to imagine within like the constraints of what we have today. For sure. Take the limits on the earth around us. There's not unlimited resources, et cetera, et cetera. They're exhaustible and so forth. I take all of that very seriously. Maybe that this principle is never fully realizable. 
if you look at Marx's discussion, it's conjectural. This would be required for the principle. He doesn't say we will have this. He doesn't offer a guarantee. And Lenin stressed this in the state and revolution. He says nobody can guarantee this. It's a perspective for the future. I think that there are things that can be done once we get rid of capitalist production, capitalist priorities to not have waste, have a better so-called throughput ratio so that we can have more stuff with less degradation of resources and, and so forth. But I still think it's not possible to guarantee uh, that this is possible to achieve. It seems difficult to imagine within what we have within our current imagination. As you said, it's not crucial to get to that level of production in order to have a communist society or do away with the problems of capitalism. Not at all. And I think the stagification and the emphasis on taking power and the emphasis on distribution, different reasons, all those things have combined to screw people's heads up so that they don't see what's really right in front of their eyes if they read the critique of the Gotha program is here, right when you know, you've broken from capitalist society, there's no value, there's directly social labor, common ownership, no exchange of products, it's a classless society. Hell, those things together define what a socialist or communist society is. Right, You don't have to have from each according to their ability, each according to their needs. I mean, that's really audacious. You know, you don't have exploitation if you don't have people having to contribute such and such amount of value and produce such and such an amount of products to be entitled to have a very, very different society already. Marx says that, quote, the narrow horizon of bourgeois right can be crossed in its entirety, close quote only in the higher phase of communist society. So does this mean that right, or the realm of rights, justice, law, is inherently bourgeois, and that it won't exist in the higher phase? But Londo argues against such an interpretation. I think he basically gets this right, or correct. Marx is talking about the narrow horizon of bourgeois right. If you look at this, there's the bourgeois right, where in some hypothetical exchange society, commercial society without exploitation, people would get back according to how much value they produce. And then you've got the lower phase of communism where people get back after deductions, amount of products that cost an equal amount of labor to the amount of labor they've contributed. Marx says that's also encumbered with bourgeois right, because what you receive depends on what you contribute. So all of that has to do with bourgeois right. And Marx is saying, we can cross that narrow horizon in the higher phase of communism. That doesn't mean that there's no right. It means it's not bourgeois right anymore. There's a different standard of right. Also, the paragraph right before the one in question, Marx says, look, the defects of the lower phase of communism are unavoidable given the state of economic development and social development, cultural development, right when we've emerged from capitalist society. So he says that right can never be higher than the economic structure of society and its cultural development is determined by it. Look at the, the sentence and the logic of the sentence. What that's basically saying is with a superior economic structure of society, that makes possible a higher standard of right or a higher form of right or law or justice. So it's not an overcoming of right as such. It's an overcoming of this limited horizon, perspective, constellation of rights and justice, 
So instead of bourgeois right, there's going to be communist right. You don't see how it's an overcoming of rights and, and, and justice as such. And I think that this is very closely tied with all, all the stuff that I was kind of alluding to before and Bologna goes into it, where people would say Marx is opposed to morality, he's opposed to talking about morality. And I think it's just that he doesn't like hot air pronouncements of let's institute this because it's an absolute moral principle and he doesn't think that justice there are standards of justice that are common to all kinds of societies that gets confused with being against all discussion of morality and appeals to morality and attempts to more realize moral principles i just think that people are just so confused and mush all of that together Orlando stresses that the principle contains lots of ambiguities he says like all principles, Marx's is indefinite regarding its content. This lack of specificity generates a number of questions, as well as problems of practical implementation. Close quote. He also cites some authors like Robert Ware and G.A. Cohen, who regard the lack of specificity as a virtue. I side with the people who, who think it's a virtue, not because we don't need the specificity, but I think Ware says is Marx was not a utopian. He didn't want to lay out specific plans for it's going to be like this, it's going to be like that. You don't want to provide the recipes for the cookshops of the future, which is Marx's expression. What can you do? Well, you can formulate principles and say, well, you know, look, you guys got to work out how to make it happen, but here's what we want to have. Having a goal, it's having a principle. G.A. Cohen said a rule or a principle does not lack the authority of justice simply because it does not always tell the agent precisely what she ought to do. It just specifies here is a certain framework within which problem needs to be solved, not here's how to solve it. I think we need principles. I think principles are abstract by their nature, but that's the they provide frame within which the problem solving and the specification can occur. If you don't have the principles, then what do you do? You're flying by the seat of your pants. You're taking each case on its own as if you just have to work it out on the basis of the facts. Well, facts don't speak for themselves, you know. You have to work from some goals and some principles, it seems to me. People's desire for specificity just might be because it's hard for them to like imagine what such a society would be like. Because we live concrete lives in like a concrete world. This kind of question, what Marx is doing, he's, he's dealing with like very basic questions of like what characterizes a mode of production. And you can fill that in with all sorts of concrete content if you understand the principle. And it could be very different concrete content depending on your own imagination or the circumstances that may develop in the future. But just like there can be lots of different types of capitalist societies that can even be radically different from each other, but still conform to a capitalist society. It's just a different type of question that he's doing. You know, he's not writing like a science fiction book about the future and like describing the details of a society. Yeah, I mean, people are right to want answers. Yeah. I want answers. You want answers. The thing is, you don't have the answers. And without principles, we're never going to get to the answers. Belando argues that the principle clashes with libertarianism and with strict egalitarianism. Why should those with greater ability be required to contribute more, especially when there are no incentives to contribute more? You know, everyone receives according to their need, not according to what they contribute. And why shouldn't they receive everything they produce, but only what they need, right? You could produce more than you receive because you're only taking what you need, but you may be your incredibly productive worker or something. Both things are in violation 
of their personal freedom by some definitions of that personal freedom, at least, you know, like a libertarianism or a strict egalitarianism perspective. So what do you make of those kind of criticisms? I think they're fine criticisms. They're important criticisms with respect to the principle in general. With respect to the principle within Marxist text, I don't think they make any, any sense at all because there's no requirement here in a society where you get everything you need, why are people going to be concerned with, oh, well, I did more, so I should get more? This whole idea of incentives to contribute more, won't. those incentives will be totally inapplicable because the nature of work, as we've been talking about, is completely revolutionized. So work is something people want to do. We're not going to have these divisions of labor and so forth. I think that Marx is aware of those issues, and it's precisely for the reasons he says, yeah, we can't realize this principle, or I guess we couldn't realize it except point of a gun, if you've got scarcity, if you've got sucky jobs, and so forth. But he's saying, okay, to have a free society that realizes this principle, here's what you need. You need this and that and the other, and if we have that, then all those problems that are you know, concerning the libertarians, he's saying, I'm talking about society here hypothetical society in which those problems just don't arise. understand need not in terms of just like, you know, filling some minimal caloric requirement, but, mm-hmm. but you know, need in the fuller sense that, that Marx is talking about where, you know, there's like a whole lot of human needs and the need for association with other people and the need for self-fulfillment and self-development. I mean, Marx has got a real expansive concept of human need, which is the development of human beings in society. And Bolando is, is like very well aware of that. So why would people say, I'm going to contribute more so I can get more than I need? It just doesn't make any sense. People have reactions to this because they're thinking within the logic of this is the society we live in now. Because this is these are the grievances of like people don't want to pay taxes if their kids don't go to the local school, right? Or they they, they don't want people who don't work to get welfare, right? They, it's like an affront to their sense of what's fair in society. And by some definitions of fairness, that is not fair. Not the question that we'd be dealing with in a higher phase of communism, where it's just, it's a completely different context for these kind of questions. In a footnote in his conclusion, Alondo notes that a 2002 survey commissioned by Columbia Law School revealed that 69% of Americans thought that the principle was or could have been written by the framers included in the United States Constitution. The framers are the you know f- people who wrote the Constitution, who's founding fathers. <laughs> and make anything of this, except other than that Americans are not good at answering surveys and don't know much about politics and history? <laughs> Is this supposed to be like, oh, supposed to show that there's like, Inherent, inherent sympathy for the higher face of communism amongst people that they're not aware of? Uh, well, let me look at what Orlando says. Um, he says, The vitality of the principle is apparent in the numerous references and commentaries in contemporary philosophical literature, also in people's minds, quoted by Margaret Atwood in The Handmaid's Tale, the Irish novelist Sally Rooney, and then he says, oh, Henry's short story, From Each According to His Ability, it gives other examples, and then he gives the example of this survey. So he's kind of like in 
in the air. I think he's kind of suggesting that it's also attracted to people. I don't know. I don't know if it's attracted to people. I, I could I could see a lot of people being attracted to it. And I could see a lot of people being turned off by it. people resentful of like their money going to other people. I remember when I think it was when Obama was running for president the first time, his first term, him being chased by some reporter, you know, in a hallway at some point, and she's some right wing reporter and she's yelling at him, teach according to his ability, teach according to his needs. What do you think of that? So it was supposed to be some I got you moment where they were going to prove that he was a, a clandestine communist. It's trotted out by the right as like a straw man to scare people. So 63% of people, I don't know, people, people answer surveys. They, they don't know what they're talking about. What came to my mind is taste like chicken. You know, tastes like chicken. Like, why do we say about everything unfamiliar oh, that we eat? Yeah. It tastes like chicken, right? Mm-hmm. Well, because we lack familiarity, and that's like the only thing we can compare it to. This thing, people haven't heard it. It sounds flowery. It's not colloquial English. It sounds uh, good. Maybe it's right. vaguely familiar. Oh, it, yeah, it, sounds like it tastes like chicken. It's right. something that the, the, the framers of the Constitution would have said. You could pro- yeah, you could probably do that with a lot of quotes. Yeah. You could just, it sounds like it's from that time period, and people would give them multiple choice, and they would say, oh, yeah, framers, any fathers, right? Yeah. Sounds kind of egalitarian. Mm-hmm. And- Right. And people don't take the time when they're looking at a survey to parse through every word and say, you know, oh, gee, you know, much less have the context where Mark said it, where you see that it really does mean receive without regard to what you contribute and contribute without regard to what you receive. That's not obvious just from the words. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's a 2002 survey, so it's before people could just pick up their phone and say, hey, Siri, who said, who said this? That's true. I'll tell you, there's so many misattributed quotations because of the problem that, that, that you, you, you alluded to. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, people are, are, are saying all kinds of things, you know, and then, and then the misquoting of what people said. Yeah. yeah. So. You have been listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. This has been episode 104. Thank you for listening. Please check out episode 105, due in a couple of weeks. Goodbye.